0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM in Melbourne. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Rainer McIntyre. Rainer is a world-leading epidemiologist and biosecurity expert, and she joined me to talk about her new book, Dark Winter, an insider's guide to pandemics and biosecurity. In our conversation, Reiner talks in depth about the information wars that have existed during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also before that. She talks of the history of biological attacks, lab accidents and pandemics, and a pattern of denial, silence and cover-up around unnatural epidemics and the powerful vested interests at play. She also delves into specific areas of interest, including gain-of-function research. I'm really excited now to introduce my next guest, Professor Rainer McIntyre. Rainer is a leading epidemiologist and professor of global biosecurity at the University of New South Wales. She's also an adjunct professor at Arizona State University and leads research in epidemic control as well as vaccinology and aerosol science. So obviously highly relevant to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. Rainer is also an expert in outbreak detection and mitigation, including those that arise from bioterrorism and biological warfare. So it's uh, really exciting to be speaking with Rainer about her new book, Dark Winter, An Insider's Guide to Pandemics and Biosecurity, especially given her very long track record and depth of expertise in such a wide range of areas relating to those fields. And just this year, Raina won the Eureka Prize for Leadership in Science and Innovation. She's also a founding member of the excellent scientific advisory group AusSage, which is a truly special and wonderful group. I'm so glad that uh, Australia has had the access to their expertise during this pandemic because um, on the show we've had regulars like Mary Louise McClaws, Brendan Crabb who I had on last week and in March and also others like uh, Nancy Baxter and Adrian Esterman so it is my great pleasure to welcome onto the show Raina McIntyre. Hi there Rainer and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Good morning it's a pleasure. As part of your amazing biography, you also are a trained physician, and I know that you wanted to get into cardiology, and you know were certainly um, inspired at med school to hopefully head into that path. But you actually headed off into another pathway, and I was really interested in that story and how you got so enmeshed and inspired and um, interested in. The area of biosecurity and outbreak management, and the type of training that you had at ANU in at the master's level—it it sounded absolutely fascinating—and I was hoping you might be able to recount it for us today to get us into the area more broadly that your book starts to tackle, and then we'll delve into some of the key themes of the book.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so you know, I did medicine at Sydney Uni, and. I knew I wanted to do public health. I was always interested in populations and, you know, public health. Um, but I also knew I wanted to do my physician training, you know, to be a specialist physician. And so I did that at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. And I did a lot of cardiology in what's called the basic training and um, really loved it and saw myself, you know, becoming a cardiologist and, um um, but, but I was also really interested in epidemiology and I didn't quite know what it was all about but wanted to learn more and saw an ad for the Master of Applied Epidemiology um, in the newspapers and decided to apply and um, that, that was the Australian Field Epidemiology Training Program which is run out of ANU and, and that was the second year that this program had been running so I was part of it right at the beginning and. At that time, they brought across people from the U.S. CDC. A guy called Mike Blaine, who'd actually been the director of smallpox eradication at CDC, and um, he helped set up that program at ANU. So I was really lucky to have benefited from his knowledge. And um, the, the way it works is you have intensive births of training in the classroom but you spend most of your time in the field, in a field placement. And my placement was in the Victorian Department of Health, um, which was a centralised system. And so it was pretty amazing outbreak experience, you know, so two years of outbreak investigation. So if there was an outbreak in a little country town, you know, two of us would get in a government car and go out and investigate and, the outbreak under control and we were, we were a bit taught, you know, the basics in the classroom, but then we had to apply it in the field and that's kind of a very – it's a great way of learning because you never forget when you apply those principles that you learn to real-life problems.
0: Yeah, it sounded then, like um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
1: so that, then I, I decided that I just loved it so much. I um, went on and did a PhD and it was in tuberculosis Um based on uh, the TB pro- refugee program and contact tracing program in Victoria again, but I did my PhD through ANU and then, you know, worked a little bit, uh, worked for a, as a clinician treating TB patients at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and then then got pregnant with my first child and we moved back to Sydney um, just because my parents were here and they were sort of a huge support to me. Couldn't have could have managed, you know, uh, without them during the early stages of my career. And uh, that was that, you know, it changed my whole career direction.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you've had so many different experiences, because not only have you had these practical outbreak management experiences, but you've also spent a lot of time researching, being a researcher, publishing papers on a range of areas, as you've outlined in the book, including around aerosol science and the efficacy of N95 respirators versus surgical masks. I was just really fascinated about the spectrum of your expertise. Was there anything that particularly led you through to biosecurity as an area well I started
1: out I started out doing tuberculosis research and um, then when I moved back to Sydney I um, took a job at the National Center for Immunization research in 2000 and that was fairly newly created National Center and I stayed there till I moved to UNSW in 2008 um, and that was primarily you know the remit there was vaccines and vaccine programs and i i learned a lot about the vaccines did vaccine clinical trials learned about policy and um you know did i was actually the technical editor of the immunization handbook and um assisted with lots of the atagi stuff back then you know more than 20 years ago now and but i was interested in other aspects of prevention of of infections other than vaccines and um it was just by chance, you know, in 2006, which was the peak of pandemic planning around avian influenza, because there'd been these outbreaks of this novel avian flu virus, H5N1, um, across Asia that year. So governments everywhere were planning for, you know, what they thought would be an influenza pandemic. And um, they realised nobody had ever done a randomised controlled clinical trial of masks. So the chief health officer at the time, John Horvath, who I'd known because I'd been his intern at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, um, uh, he contacted me because he knew I was doing infectious diseases research and said, "Look, we'd like to do a trial of masks. Do you think? uh, Can you design one?" And I said, "Sure, I can design one." And So um, I I did that first trial of masks and that was in the community, looking at families of kids with um, respiratory infections, recruited through the emergency department at Children's Hospital at Westmead, where I was working at the time. And we followed up their parents, you know, who were randomised to wear masks, respirators, or no masks in the family, to look at the protective um, efficacy of those devices. And I didn't realise I was was moving into a very, very political area of research. Um, And, you know, I cover that in the book, there's a whole chapter on face masks.
0: Yeah, well, as you say, to give the game away a little bit, your research produced an unpopular finding, but obviously grounded in science, which is that N95s protect against respiratory infections, whereas surgical masks don't offer good protection. They're really about stopping splashes of fluid to stop a surgeon contaminating a wound. You know They have a very specific but narrow purpose. Whereas, as you say, the respirators, the N95 respirators, they play such an important role in preventing aerosol transmission and transmission of those respiratory illnesses, including influenza, but also obviously for our current day example, SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, preventing you from getting COVID-19. And um, obviously, this research must have made such a splash because, as you say, you were kind of caught up in this controversy with even those who are part of the infection and prevention control sphere writing a, a joint letter of protest to Barack Obama, who was the president at the time of the US it must really it sounds like almost impossible but you know like how was that experience you know stepping into a field you didn't really know would be so controversial
1: Yeah, and that that was after the trial I did um, in Australia in the community. I I knew that the biggest question was around health workers and that we needed a trial in health workers of respirators versus masks. That was a huge gap and um, I just pursued different avenues and in the end um, I got recruited across to UNSW in 2008 and UNSW gave me funding with my package to come over there with which I used to do this trial and I'd tried for a couple of years to do the trial in Australia but no healthcare worker would wear a mask in Australia so it wasn't possible to even do the trial and I knew you'd have to look at at Asia you know trying to do and we used to get these Chinese delegations visiting us at the Hot Children's Hospital at Westmead and um, I used to go along and meet them and Pitched this idea and eventually you know there was someone in one of the delegations who became my close collaborator from the Beijing CDC um, Dr. Wang Changyi, and he was interested in the research um, and he co-funded some of the research um, and we developed a really good collaboration and ran you know three clinical trials together in Beijing and um, that was at a time when you know yeah, anyway... The elaboration um, was
0: less politicised.
1: It was, it was much easier. Like, yeah. I, I haven't visited China since 2017 because things changed so much politically since that time, you know, when we were first going there. It was an amazing experience and we, we did these really amazing trials that the infection control community globally tried to shut down and minimise and make invisible... A, during the 2009 influenza pandemic, but then during SARS-CoV-2 again. And there's been this, you know, in the book I talk about um, information warfare and how common it is and how um, pervasive it is in medicine. And I give examples historically of tobacco and climate change and even, you know, our our own Nobel Prize winning scientist, Barry Marshall, and... um, Bob and Warren and how their research was shut down and denied um, on, uh, until they won the Nobel Prize for it 20 years later. Um, that when, you know, the point is that when the scientific community um, wants to shut something down, they can. And, and they will, co- you know, and the journals will collude and everyone will play a role in um, shutting down research that, that, you know, for whatever reason is um, desired to be shut down. Um,
0: yeah, I think that's a really important think, chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is so important, and and that's why I use the historical examples that can help people see. Oh my God, God, it happened with um, tobacco science, you know, for a hundred years doctors and scientists were colluding with tobacco companies to say it was harmless, you know, and the people who were saying smoking was dangerous were painted as conspiracy theorists and, and shut down and medical journals were advertising cigarettes at the pages of their journals. Um, a lot of people don't know that history. You know, Camel used to have <laughs> advertising that said more doctors smoke Camel than any other cigarette and um, it was it was really shocking we should go back and look historically at what happened. But if we don't learn from history, we can never, you know, make any change in the in the present.
0: Oh, absolutely. I really did also I loved the stomach ulcers example you just referenced earlier about Barry Marshall and Robin Warren's research Mm. because that was just such another great example of, you know, entrenched pharmaceutical interests the medical industry kind of rallying behind a theory and wanting it to be true, even though it's not true, which is, you know, that gastric ulcers were supposedly caused by stress because that meant uh, people would be on H2 blockers. So things that neutralize stomach acid for life, instead of having one simple course of antibiotics to treat helicobacter pylori infections, like it is quite mind blowing.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you see it over and over again. It's mm. the same thing with the with the mask controversy, you know. And we're seeing it now, you know. With with um, you know, recently there was another trial published that that was designed to show what they defined as equivalence between an N95 respirator and a surgical mask. Is that that the surgical mask could be anything up to two times worse than a respirator, and it will be considered equivalent? Now, how's that okay for a health worker? You know, and then there's this massive cognitive dissonance about everywhere about the shortage of health workers. You know, we're advertising for nurses' assistants in Australia for unqualified people to come in and help nurses because there's such a nursing shortage, you know. No one's up putting two and two together and wondering why healthcare workers don't want to work in healthcare anymore, you know, and it's global. It's not just in Australia.
0: Exactly. You can't just hire your way out of it by focusing on, and you an, can't
1: you can't treat health workers like expendable assets, you know, mm-hmm. um, and 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 kind of um, neglect their occupational health and safety.
0: No, absolutely. It's something that certainly is most obvious in that COVID is airborne section that you write about. That real reluctance. For certainly a huge proportion of, you know, scientists, especially infectious diseases specialists and even the World Health Organization, you know, to admit that it was an aerosol transmission that was the primary mode of transmission of SARS-CoV-2 instead of this idea of a droplet transmission mode. But even I just was really interested in that research that you did in April 2020. You said you published a paper in the Journal of Infectious Diseases, which was even debunking the 1 to 2 meter rule of social distancing essentially you know showing that large droplets can travel over 2 meters and that that social distancing policy as you write was based on entrenched ideology Rather than evidence, yeah. we still have those stickers on the floor in shops, <laughs> as you walk around a supermarket or you know go to the bakery, saying keep a distance. But really, it seems like and, and the perfect barriers, are the, you know, which are, yeah. which are worse than useless. <laughs> yeah, it is amusing, but Everyone's you know, got I love that you highlighted. Barrier. Yeah, well, you highlighted something really special here, which is that Australia is so lucky to have engineering and uh, physics experts but we don't even utilise them locally apart from obviously Ausage. Yeah, um, like Lydia
1: Morawska, you know, mm. she was named in the from QUT, who was Professor Lydia Morawska, who was named as in the Time 100's influential, most influential people in 2021 for her role in um, challenging the WHO um, on on airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2. So it's a it's a common story. You see, you know these top experts who are not recognised in Australia but recognised internationally. And um, uh, we had that resource, and yet, you know, she, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's her story, and um, I don't want to, you know, speak for her. But um, we do have great expertise and great knowledge in Australia, and um, yet, you know, we 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 had these. Committees that were, you know, denying um, proper protection for health workers for a long time, and um, and then we've got this burnout of health workers.
0: Yeah, and as you say, the consequence has been that many healthcare workers died unnecessarily, especially in the early years of the pandemic. To close out this discussion on the COVID disinformation part of the book, there's a lot in that section, so we haven't represented the whole area, but there is one area that you have certainly been writing about a lot, and I really valued all of the work you have done to communicate what endemic means, the kind of understanding of COVID, because a lot of the messaging across the pandemic had been, COVID will become endemic, it'll be just like the flu, it's just another cold. The flu only happens once or twice a year, and it's not that constant across the whole year, whereas, you know, COVID, as we know, is just wave after wave after wave of infection and new variants. And it just seems like there's so much disinformation around that space um, that just continues to proliferate. And you take some time in the book to explain what the definitions are of um, elimination, you know, this whole language that was existing around elimination versus suppression there are a lot of furfies and a lot of entanglements around terminology but I really appreciated just how clearly you explain why COVID is not endemic why it won't become endemic and I just wondered if you could take the time to explain it for us here
1: sure so the terminology endemic and epidemic and you know there's three main patterns of Infectious diseases and they are endemic epidemic and sporadic sporadic infections are usually ones spread from animals to humans And they don't occur frequently. You see occasional cases or occasional small outbreaks, but um, Not in large numbers then um, endemic diseases are those where you don't see big changes over time And they can exist in very high numbers like malaria for example One of the most important causes of death in the world and illness in the world um, really important infection, but it's endemic. And that means that changes, if any, don't occur rapidly. So you might see changes over years, but rarely would you see changes over days, weeks, or even months. Um, so malaria, whereas an epidemic infection, which is um, defined by the reproductive number of the R0, which we've heard a lot about during the pandemic, is one where um, that one case gives rise to more than one other case. So you get this exponential growth um, and epidemic potential. So um, if I've got, you know, COVID and, you know, currently we think the R0 could be anywhere between 6 to 15, depending on, that's another discussion, Um, but if I've got COVID and I infect another six people and they go on to each infect another six people, you can see that very quickly and now with the current variants, the incubation period is very, very short. You can be infectious and infected the next day after getting exposed, you know, within two days. Um, then you can see how rapidly case numbers can grow, right? Um, And it grows exponentially. Um, And that's the the uh, feature that causes the health system to collapse. Remember the refrigerator trucks outside the hospitals in New York and the The mass graves that they were digging in New York in 2020. And, um, you know, the the health systems collapse that we've seen repeatedly during COVID. Uh, We're seeing, you know, we're not talking about it much, but there's severe stress on the health system has been ever since um, the end of 2021 in Australia. Um, You only have to... If you don't need access to access the health system, you won't see it. But if you do need to access the health system, you will see it, um, whether it's, you know, ambulance ramping or, you know, ambulance just not turning up. Uh, we've had people having cardiac arrest where the ambulance comes an hour later, you know, which is um, generally too late unless you've got a defibrillator um, on, on wherever the cardiac arrest occurred. So we're seeing all of that, but nobody's talking about it. Um, so we're going to come to accept a much lower level of health care than we had before. That's, that's what we're going to end up with. That's what we already have, you know, less access to care, a lower level of health care, and it's because of the enormous stress that um, COVID has placed on the health system, and it keeps coming in waves. So we get a short reprieve, um, and then, you know, uh, you start getting another wave, and that's because... Um, you know the the vaccine immunity wanes especially if you've only had two doses and um even if you've had three doses and even if you've had four doses and also the new new variants are, are very very distant to the original to the vaccine which was made against the original 2020 strain so um it doesn't protect as well i mean it, it does protect reasonably well against death and um severe and hospitalisation, but uh, still the majority of people dying and hospitalised are vaccinated. And that's because it's not because the vaccine isn't working. It's called the paradox of vaccination where, because most Australians are vaccinated. Um, but it's telling you, you know, um, these these vaccines, you know, are not working as well against um, these newer variants. They're very, very immune evasive. And that's an epidemic disease that's going to keep disrupting society over and over again, unless we get new, newer vaccines that can actually prevent, that are variant-proof um, and have very high efficacy, or unless we use, um, you know, layered mitigation strategies to flatten that curve. Um, and, you know, people kind of have this knee-jerk reaction and get hysterical about lockdowns. So lockdowns are something from 2020 that... when partly 2021 because we were so delayed in our vaccination program, but they were to buy time until we had everyone vaccinated, right? So nobody's going back to lockdowns. Nobody's advocating for lockdowns. It's not an all or nothing um, phenomenon, but there's a lot more we can do. We can improve the vaccine policy, uh, widen the access to boosters and vaccines. We can vaccinate our kids under five um, as the US is doing, um, and, you know, when you look at long COVID, the the rates of long COVID in kids are highest in the zero to three-year-olds, and that's probably because they're not vaccinated. Um, that's That was a big study from Denmark that came out. So um, that's, that's what an epidemic disease is. It's very disruptive. Something like SARS-CoV-2 that's highly, highly contagious um, is just going to keep causing massive disruption over and over again. And um, we seem to be just ignoring it and 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 uh, pretending it's all over. But eventually it's going to catch up and it's the long COVID that's going to catch up because that's going to hit the health system even harder and we really are going to be living with a much, much lower standard of health care than ever
0: before because of it. Mm. And certainly even with the recent announcements from the government saying that from January access to PCR testing will be really restricted so you have to go and pay to see your GP because most of them don't bulk bill you have to be able to get into a GP in the first place to get that PCR form to go and get the test performed i mean this seems like it's adding unnecessary burden and strain onto the primary healthcare system as well it
1: is and 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 maybe it's it's to sort of you know try uh, maybe it's because less testing means you know less official cases i don't Mm. know but less testing means there'll be more transmission because if people can't get tested you know they can they can if they're not feeling too bad they'll go out they will do whatever they're doing they'll infect other people whereas if they get a test and it's positive, people will generally, you know, not not deliberately go out and infect other people. Um, so it's not going to be good. In the end, it's going to be a self-defeating strategy. The WHO, you know, one of the things they have been very good at is saying how important testing is and that no country should drop the ball or dismantle testing, that um, it's really important. And if you're getting... Um, there's, they, have, they look at the percentage of positive tests as a indicator of whether you're doing enough testing. So even in the middle of this year, WHO was saying, if you're getting more than 5% of your tests positive, you're doing way too little testing, right? We were having like 20% of tests positive in the middle of this year, right? That's going to get yeah. even higher, right? which means we're way, way, way below the threshold that WHO has suggested as a reasonable level of testing. And rat tests, you know, unless they're going to make it free for everyone, mm. um, they're expensive. and And you can't just buy one test and that's the end of it. You know, people are getting infected once a month. You know, once every couple of months, over and over again, and a lot of people just aren't testing anymore. They're just saying, "Oh, I got a cold. I got the flu," even though there's no flu in in Australia at the moment. Um, so there's this cognitive dissonance, this mass, this mass lies, you know, about uh, people are just saying, "Oh, I just got a cold. I've, I've been I've heard of them in my social circle. Oh, I've just got a cold. Yeah, I didn't bother testing. It's just a cold." You know, mm. <laughs> but they're mm-hmm. sick as a dog, and it's clearly most likely to be COVID because there's a hell of a lot of COVID around at the moment. Um, So that's the situation we're in. Um, And it it doesn't bode well, especially for the long COVID, um, because that is going to really be a a mass disabling thing if, if we don't reduce the amount of transmission.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I've certainly seen a lot of people, uh, even very high profile people, saying they're suffering from long COVID symptoms. Anne Summers, this well known Australian feminist, said it the other day on Twitter. She's suffering as well. One other portion of that long COVID type sequelae, eh, the effects of COVID down the track, you highlight that in the book as being vascular, neurological. You explain that SARS-CoV-2 causes massive vascular pathology including blood clots, blockage of arteries which increases the risk of stroke and heart attack and you cite one study published in Nature Medicine showing that at least 12 months after infection the risk of heart attacks, strokes, clots and fatal abnormal heart rhythms increased by a factor of two, which is pretty significant. And it's not just in quote unquote vulnerable people. This is in 50 year olds and younger people as well. Yeah. Know, yeah, And also, of course, the effect on brains, as you say, CT scans, showing that the brain undergoes shrinkage and and there are drops in IQ equivalent to ageing 20 years. You know, this is not the same as a regular coronavirus, a regular cold, um, you know, even influenza, which is, as Brendan Crabb said last week, a very serious disease. It seems that that part is so underplayed publicly by politicians and so poorly understood by the general public because of the messaging they're receiving that that real risk is not really mitigated um yeah, you yeah. know to the extent that it should i'm sure people <laughs> if they knew that would be wearing masks and taking more precautions surely
1: yeah so yeah and i think i think there's just a um At some levels, there's deliberate obfuscation of truth, but at other levels, there's just mass denial. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I see it amongst infectious diseases researchers, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, which is really shocking. uh, But anyone who actually takes the time to follow the literature, to read the studies that are coming out... Um, there's like overwhelming evidence of the serious pathology in you know a substantial proportion of people that can result from this infection, and also that reinfection every time you get reinfected, it increases your risk of these side effects. Does't make it better? it doesn't give you herd immunity, it doesn't give you hybrid immunity, it actually increases the risk, and probably it may even increase your risk of getting reinfected again because Um, the virus actually uh, causes a lot of dysfunction of the immune system. Um, And we've seen other viruses that do that, like measles. Um, So once you've had measles, for the next two to three years, you're more susceptible to all kinds of other infections because it kind of paralyses your immune system, the measles virus. That's surprising. A lot of people don't even know that. I was on some expert group and I mentioned that and said... and. You know, one of the other virologists on this said, said, oh, no, measles doesn't do that. No, no. I said, yes, it does. Here are all the papers. Read them. You know, they're old papers. It's been known for a long time. But there's a lot, you know, that's the whole thing about infectious diseases. It's very sub-specialized. So, you know, just because someone's an expert on one thing, you know, that doesn't mean they know what they need to know about everything else in in, in the field. Um and this is a you have to be actively following the research and everyone who is knows this is a really, really serious disease.
0: Absolutely. And the other part of this book, there are so many parts, it's such a, a really deep but also broad book, is talking about unnatural versus natural pandemics and, you know, the emergence of viruses and bacteria etc and and one really interesting thing for me is that we were talking a lot at the start of the pandemic about zoonotic disease and um, the transmission of disease from animals into humans and you know the evolution of viruses but we weren't talking that much about how unnatural causes of pandemics come about and that is really a huge focus of this book and obviously COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 has been a focus in recent times in parts of the community and certainly in the scientific community as well and I just wondered if you could take us through some of your thinking around it you do lay it out in the book but obviously one of the things that most struck me at the beginning of the book was your discussion of your epidemic observatory EpiWatch, this ai system that can scan the news and social media and you were saying that you were all on summer holidays and no one was there you know looking at the signals it was spitting out but um, as you would later find out Quote, had we been analysing the data at the time, we could have detected a signal for COVID way back in November 2019. So could you take us through your team's thinking around COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 and what you've come to understand about the unnatural origins of pandemics? Just on the Epi watch though, the reason yeah. there was no one looking at the signals is we'd run out of funding
1: for it, right? Mm. We had a grant that ended... And there was no funding left to hire people to be analysts, you know. We Mm -hmm. subsequently got another grant in 2020 after the pandemic started, which allowed us to really develop it further. But um, that's the thing. We have this exponentially huge um, investment in things like drugs, vaccines, diagnostics, which is all necessary and really important, but there's virtually no investment in the early detection of pandemics in in um, things like what we're doing with EpiWatch. So in terms of unnatural epidemics, how I, you know, I've been warning, I've published a paper in 2015 in a journal called Military Medicine, uh, where I did a risk analysis, very basic risk analysis, showing that the risk of Unnatural pandemics is much higher than that of natural pandemics. And the, the reason for that is because of ama- uh, like amazing advances in um, synthetic biology, which is being able to create a virus from scratch in a lab, and uh, genetic engineering, um, the kind of leaps and bounds in this technology that have occurred, especially in the last 10 years, is is phenomenal and there's zero understanding of what this threat is and how it is an existential threat to humanity in the community. Um, The community has a high awareness of things like climate change because we're seeing it around us um, and a reasonably high awareness of things like cyber threats because, again, we're seeing it around us, you know. If you're with Optus or Medibank Private, you'd know all about it. But there's very little awareness of the threat, the existential threat we uh, face from these biosecurity threats. And that was part of the reason I wrote the book, is to try to convey in a simple uh, way to people in the community what the threat is why they need to be interested and why they need to have a voice at the table because um, as i argue at the end of the book the answer isn't going to come from scientists it's going to come from the community just like we've seen election results determined by community awareness of climate change so too i believe in the power of the people you know when people are empowered with knowledge people can make change happen and um this is just an area that I think we need to see change in the way we, the governance, the regulation and how we deal with these threats. I mean, the, the technology itself is really important technology. It's important for medicine, for healthcare, but it's got substantial risks. But we kind of completely ignore the risks and only focus on the benefits. Yeah. So I start off by explaining, um, histor- give historical examples one after another that make it very hard for anyone to just go into denial and say it's just a conspiracy theory, right? Mm -hmm. That's the way I tackled it to just give you, here here you go. These are the examples in history. They are real examples. We've seen denial, lies, um, you know, cover up um, time after time after time. Gave the example of the Russian flu pandemic in 1977 and that was, it's accepted now as a lab leak from um, experiments probably in China or maybe in Russia as well, which was doing the same kind of experiments on um, uh, live attenuated influenza vaccines. And um, somehow, you know, there was some kind of lab leak, you know, maybe someone in the lab got infected, uh, wasn't properly attenuated, and then it caused a pandemic. Um, At the time, though, and for 30 years, there was fierce denial of any kind of unnatural origin and the same things we hear today about SARS CoV 2. Oh, it came from the animals. Oh, it came from frozen this and that. You know, the same array of explanations. Um, and it was very staunchly defended, this natural origins theory, for a very long time um, until it was finally accepted that, you know, there was pretty clear evidence it came from a lab. Um, so I give a lot of other examples and show how um, the common themes of denial and cover-up and the reasons and I explore the reasons why there are these denials and cover-up and you know it's really important for people to understand what what the threat is that we face because the the kind of technology that's out there today it is super cheap compared to even five years ago it is super accessible you can buy a lab in a box kit on the internet you know the whole do-it-yourself biology field is huge you know we've got Labs everywhere in the world uh, official labs for do it yourself biology, but there's a lot of unofficial stuff that happens as well and um you know um, i think and then i I go through lab accidents, you know mm. they are so common um and you can go through one uh, one of the organizations in the u s that catalogs lab accidents. you can go through their database and have a look at all the lab accidents that have Been documented and it's it's mind-boggling, you know. They happen all the time. So to say, oh no, you know, (laughs) it's not possible. It's just it's just it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, and one thing that is no accident is gain-of-function research. That was something quite new to me in terms of my understanding of how it works. And you lay out some of the red flags to look for that might suggest gain-of-function research whenever a virus comes out or even an iteration or variant of a virus that acts differently or is more contagious. It seems that humanised mice, for example, can be used to accelerate the evolution of a virus. And I wondered if you could explain to us how gain-of-function research Research has been used and is being used in different ways.
1: Sure, so the the old fashioned way of doing genetic engineering was to cut cut out a part of the genome and maybe insert something else in, you know what I call splice and dice. Genetics. And back in the 60s and 70s in the Soviet Union, you know, they were breaching the Biological Weapons Convention and had a massive biological weapons program. They were trying to do that. They were trying to put, you know, some of the gen- genetic material from um, things like Lassa virus into smallpo- the smallpox virus variola. But the technology that was available back then was very clumsy and old fashioned. In 2012, um, since 2012, we've had another method called CRISPR-Cas9 and the the two women who um, discovered this method, um, Jennifer Dudner and Emmanuel Charpentier, won the Nobel Prize um, in chemistry, I think or maybe it was medicine, can't remember, (laughs) a couple of years ago for this discovery. So it's a major achievement because it's a really revolutionised um, medicine, agriculture, a whole lot of fields where you need to do genetic engineering. Um, but that makes it much easier. It also, you know, that technology is used in vaccine development and a whole lot of other, in making medicines, etc. cetera, really important technology, but it's also got a dual-use side to it, you know, where it could be used for harm. Um, and then there's gain-of-function research, which is where... Instead of just cutting out a bit of um, a sequence and ins- or inserting something else in, you pass a virus through an animal species over and over again until it adapts to that species. Um, and if you want a, if you want to take say avian flu for example, avian flu um, is affects birds it It is not contagious, very highly contagious between humans, because it's adapted for birds, and the birds have very different makeup of their respiratory tract to humans so you know and this started in two thousand and eleven when two groups uh, two groups of researchers wanted to publish the methods that they used to do gain of function research on an avian flu virus that wasn't normally contagious between humans, where they um you know, passaged it through um ferrets, which are a good model for human beings because they've got the same respiratory tract makeup as um, humans. um they they passed this virus through ferrets over and over again till they got adapted to ferrets and picked up the same um affinity for human respiratory tract uh, as as a human virus would have. Therefore they took a virus that isn't naturally contagious between humans and made it contagious between humans so they gave it pandemic potential right and that caused a lot of controversy there was initially a moratorium on that kind of research and deliberation only in the U.S. really Um, everyone else was way behind the U.S. and the US had some structures in place, probably because of the 9-11 anthrax attacks. Um, so they'd set up a, a committee called the National Science Advisory Board on Biodefense. And, um, but in the end, the lobbying from the scientific community was so strong that they had to allow these publications to be published. And since then, the gates have opened, the horses have bolted. It's like a free-for-all, you know. <laughs> you you, you, could, you would lose count of the number of studies that are out there in open access journals on how to take viruses that are not normally a serious threat to humans and make them a threat to humans, right? Yeah. Um, and then we've had synthetic biology, which is another another method. But um, with the coronavirus, you know, there's scientists have been fascinated with SARS, the, the first SARS virus, in which affected the world in 2003 um, and they've been experimenting on it ever since and that includes uh, you know what seems to be gain-of-function research uh, you know researchers in the U.S. who are collaborating with researchers in and, in Wuhan and there's been a lot of there's been publications of genetic engineering to create a SARS version 2 right mm-hmm. um, so to say that a lab leak is impossible and a conspiracy theory just flies in the face of all the facts of the history of this kind of research. Yeah. Uh, humanised yeah. mice, you know, it's not ethical to um, experiment on humans, obviously, mm. um, So uh, with dangerous viruses like this. So we have um, either proxies for humans, like the ferrets in the case of influenza, or the humanised mice, which are mice that are um, genetically engineered to have um, the same respiratory tract makeup as humans and so you can do all the experiments on these humanised mice and um, that'll be a proxy for human beings. So you can create viruses that are highly transmissible in humans by passing them through these humanised mice over and over again till the viruses adapt to the mice.
0: And one example as well that you talk about is the emergence of omicron in November 2021 because you say it stood very far from delta in the evolutionary tree and you say that you know it had these many mutations including almost 20 uh, mutations that had been part of a previous study or paper it seems looking at SARS-CoV-2 and engineering a version of the spike protein for SARS-CoV-2 to make it resistant to vaccines. Could you explain to us what your understanding of the significance of that was to Omicron and whether it's speculation at this point or whether there is any understanding of how Omicron managed to kind of leap and jump across multiple evolutionary boundaries to get to where it is? Well, every one of the variants
1: since... um since D614G, which was the one that was dominant in the world through most of 2020. And even that was different to the original Wuhan strain, which kind of died out in Wuhan. That strain wasn't that infectious. It was, you know, in China, they controlled it with, with, uh, within several weeks. And the the next one that spread around the world in 2020, you know, when we saw Italy and Spain, the US, et cetera, having those bad epidemics, that was um, a new variant. And then that was dominant for most of 2020. And then all of a sudden we saw alpha, gamma and beta all evolve simultaneously in three different countries and a bunch of other ones that never took off as much. That were also very distant on the phylogenetic tree to... To the precursor virus and again Omicron was even further on the evolutionary tree. But there'd been this paper published a couple of months before the Omicron virus emerged, which was an experiment done by some scientists to see if they could engineer what they called a polymutant spike protein. So they thought they set out to engineer a version of SARS-CoV-2 that was resistant to the vaccines, right? I don't know why they do that no. but they did and um and that was published So in an open-source journal. Um, an open-source publication is, is the norm now, which means that, you know, in the old days, you had to pay subscription fees, et cetera, to read these articles. But a lot of journals now and funding agencies insist on open-source, which means that anyone can access the article and read it. So it's out there for anyone to see, right? Anyone can re- read that paper and reproduce the methods to create a completely resistant virus. And then within a couple of months, the Omicron variant emerged and it had all of those mutations plus some more. So I I won't speculate any further
0: except to say that is what happened. And there are so many different examples that you give that show that it's not just confined to one area. This is a pattern. It's not kind of one standalone issue, this idea of of gain-of-function research and this evolution of viruses that, as you say, can sometimes seemingly come out of nowhere people say maybe it's been out there for 4 years and it was just asymptomatically being transmitted and suddenly you know it's it's appeared in a far more virulent or severe form there seems to be examples that you give around smallpox and monkeypox and mers and uh, different examples and scenarios across history where there's discussions about how these viruses are altered potentially, but also that that whole field seems to be quite underregulated by government, even by the labs themselves, that there are issues around ethics when it's conducted as an animal study, because those animal ethics committees aren't necessarily looking at the effects on humans downstream. I wondered if you could follow from that and just give us a sense of what you think might be some of the solutions to the current issues that we see with some of this high-risk research, which, although, as you say, has many benefits, there are also many potential negative outcomes, whether they're intended or unintended. What are some of those areas you think that need to be addressed by government to make sure that not only is there transparency, but also that these scenarios could be prevented?
1: Yeah, it, it's a really difficult one and I, I don't know that I know what the solution is. I know that the technology is necessary, it's really important, there are a lot of benefits to it, but at the moment it's it's a, you know, it, the rights of scientists have dominated all discussion, it's been very closed discussion within scientific and policy circles um, with a lot of conflicts of interest and vested interest in, in, the, in the picture. So um, I think what the first step to a solution is that the community needs to be informed and um, part of the process. Um, we did some research actually uh, a few years ago to look at what people in the community understood about gain of function research and um, synthetic biology and things like that, and um, most people have had no idea. You know, they have mm. very little awareness. Um, and when you provide information, you know, the acceptability of such research decreases. Um, so I think in the same way that, you know, it is people in the community, ordinary people who've driven any of the change, positive change we've seen about climate change hasn't come from politicians or, you know, um <laughs> The, the, the wealthiest of the elite in society, it's come from the people. It's come from the power of the people, you know, driving change and pushing for change. And I think that's what's needed. I think um, there needs to be awareness of what's at stake, why it matters, and um, enough awareness for people in the community to, to, to demand better regulation of this technology.
0: Absolutely. I know that this book will certainly spur a lot of people on to become more aware of the issues that you've discussed and that you raise in this book because they seem absolutely essential, as you say, just as essential as climate change and cybersecurity. And you've really made it so accessible to so many people here in Australia and overseas. So I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to explain just a little bit about Your book, there's so much in there. I really do hope people pick it up and give it the due time that it deserves. But a very big thank you to you and your colleagues at AusSage for all of the advocacy you've done so far during this pandemic and that you continue to do, as well as your biosecurity research and a whole lot more. So, uh, many, many thanks from myself and all the listeners listening today.
1: And thanks so much for reading it um, because you've really picked up on some of the key issues. And I'm glad to see that you you picked up on them and you asked all the right questions. So thank you for that. I appreciate oh, that. It is my true pleasure.
0: <laughs> I've just been speaking with Raina McIntyre. Raina is a leading epidemiologist and professor of global biosecurity at the University of New South Wales. And she, as you can tell, has a great depth and breadth of expertise in epidemic control, vaccinology and aerosol science, as well as outbreak detection, mitigation, and bioterrorism, biological warfare, and much more. And you can read all about that and access the immense expertise Raina has shared with us in her book, Dark Winter, an insider's guide to pandemics and biosecurity out through New South books. It is essential. I wouldn't say that lightly, and please do pick it up and read it. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.